Hi everyone, welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought-provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. On today's episode of Invested, we are very fortunate to be joined by David Work. David is a managing director and specializes in providing comprehensive estate and financial planning services for Hightower advisors and their high net worth clients. He recently joined Hightower after a 23-year tenure at Merrill Lynch Private Wealth Management. In his role there, David worked closely with clients and their professional advisor teams to develop and implement their plans. Prior to working at Merrill, he was a senior analyst with the Nautilus Group and an attorney in private practice specializing in estate planning and tax-exempt organizations. David serves on the advisory council to the Dallas Foundation and teaches financial literacy to graduating seniors as an adjunct faculty member at Texas Christian University. During our discussion, David, Joel, and I will discuss some of the basics of estate planning, address some of the common questions that are asked of us, and help explain why estate planning is such an important topic to address as part of a holistic approach to financial wellness. So with that, let's get to our discussion with David Work. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Uh, Dave, thank you for making time out of your day to join us. Uh, You're in Dallas, right? That is right. Dallas. How, how are things in Dallas today? Things are very well in Dallas. It's actually <laughs> uh, warm temps, and uh, but it's fall. We have fall uh, towards this time of year. So lots of, you know, fall foliage to experience. So. Yeah. Well, so. here in Newport, it is cloudy and rainy. So I'm not happy about that. But and then Joel is in Maui joining us from Maui. Thanks, Dave, for taking the time. We just got rid of all the rain. Uh, so we had. 20 inches of rain in about a 24 hour period. Wow. A lot, a lot of damage actually. So, okay. but uh, bright and sunny today. <laughs> well, I hope everyone's all right. And, uh, and everybody's well. Uh, property, not lives. That's good. So Dave, we talked a little bit about your background in the intro, um, but you've been doing this for three decades ish in this field. And we also mentioned you're an adjunct professor at TCU. So can you give us just a little bit of, you know, what, how did you decide to punish yourself in this field and what made you go and decide to do estate planning and get into this area of expertise? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question, Paul. For me, I, I have a, a sense of purposefulness. I feel when I meet with a family and can help, you know, a lot of families, they, they spend a lot of time accumulating wealth, but then there's the all important, how are we going to structure that wealth when it transitions down to children and grandchildren uh, or charity? I mean, there are a lot of components I'm sure we're going to get into uh, relating to estate planning. Uh, but for me, being a part of that uh, process is very meaningful. So uh, I'm not a philanthropist in a, in, in a sense, but I've helped many families give to charities. So it's a way for me to participate in a lot of really good things. Um, also, uh, when we think about it, if we get the estate planning right and we can avoid family conflicts and save taxes and do a lot of those things, um, I feel really good about that. So yeah. 
Um, and then you mentioned the, the, the teaching at the, uh, the collegiate level. The reason why I got into that is I do like to keep my finger on the pulse of the, you know, 18 to 22 year old, that younger generation. So I can have a sense of, you know, when we're advising clients, because typically we're talking to the grandparents or the parents, I want to have a real world perspective on what are their grandchildren or their, you know, their adult children thinking about. So, um, and then it's also my way of giving back because uh, I certainly don't make a lot of money <laughs> being <laughs> a faculty member uh, at a university. It's, it's more of a volunteer proposition. Really? That's, that's what are they thinking about or not thinking about that they should be thinking about? <laughs> so we had a hard time. We were trying, as we were going through the discussion on the, on the pre-call about what to talk about, what not to talk about. And then, you know, Joel and I decided, okay, well, let's start by focusing on the topics that most clients need to address as a priority in estate planning. And when we're working with new clients, you know, one of the first things that we cover with them is, you know, where do they stand on getting their estate plan in order? And, you know, of course, this varies by client, right? It could be, hey, I'm a young parent, or hey, I'm about to, I'm getting ready for retirement, or I'm more concerned with multi-generational wealth. Sure. And, you know, and each of those clients is also at a, a different stage. They may have never, you know, dipped their toe into getting this stuff done, or it's been on their to-do list, or yes, I did it, but it was a while ago, or, and very frequently we get clients, oh yeah, you know, I'm all buttoned up on that and, you know, no need. And then when we start asking some more pointed questions, it's like they start to lose their confidence a bit of, oh, now when was the last time we did that? And it turns out it may have been seven, 10, 12, 12 years ago. Right. Yeah, I'm all so, buttoned up. I did that 10 years ago. Yeah, right. right. It's on the third shelf from the left with the dust on top. N nothing's changed, right? right. So we, we kind of thought, all right, well, let's, how do we sort of, what's the, how do we take a bite out of the elephant and start digesting all this? And so we kind of thought, let's break it down into sort of three areas. Uh, you know, the basics of estate planning, kind of why do we need to deal with this stuff? What are the components? What's a trust? Why do we use them? Um, that kind of thing. Second, sure. what are some of the important decisions I need to make? What do I need to think about in terms of structure? Uh, who's the executor? What's their role? That kind of thing. Um, you know, can I just give my stuff to my kids and be done? <laughs> and then lastly, you know, what are some of the things that we find are very common, either mistakes that are made or important things that need to be addressed first? What are the most common pain points that we see? Sure. And I, I know we could even talk about this forever. And, and as we talked about before, hey, there's so much to cover. Hopefully we can do this in a series of podcasts and, and you'll be gracious enough to come back and spend a little more time with us. I, I would love I would love that. Yeah, certainly the this the three items that you outlined there, Paul, uh, that that's a robust agenda for today's <laughs> uh, uh, podcast. And, uh, yeah. So uh, certainly I, I think a series of uh, topics that we can cover going forward. Uh, I think that that's a great idea. Great. And, you know, and for those that are listening on audio only and not listening or not watching the video, sometimes Joel and I sound very, very similar since we're siblings and, and even our parents can't often tell us that we sound apart. So uh, just know that I'm the one that's asking all the smart questions. Right. And if I say anything stupid, it's me. Right. Yeah, right. For sure. 
for sure, for sure. So anyway, sorry, with that, Dave, why don't we jump in? Why don't you cover some of the basics of estate planning and kind of walk us through some of that? You know, would it be helpful, Paul, if I started maybe with just a little bit of historical perspective, talking about some things like that? Um, I I think it's interesting, uh, just just so people can get a sense of why do we even have an estate tax? You know, when we think about it, um, and just like many taxes, uh, when there's when there's war or conflict involved, governments need to raise money. (laughs) So when we look at the history of the estate tax, Uh, You might be interested to know this goes all the way back into the late 1790s. So when there was a little uh, undeclared war with France, I'll say that was when the the first time an inheritance tax was ever uh, brought into being. Uh, But it was repealed. And then fast forward to the Civil War. Same thing. The Congress and the government needs needs funds. So they implement an inheritance tax. And then even into the late 1800s with the Spanish-American War. But it was really in the early 1900s. Uh, so Congress ratified the 16th Amendment, which said we can we can apply income tax to people. Oh, so you know that had its own set of uh, I'll say controversy and low power to tax that <laughs> that paved the way. So three years later, the inheritance tax, I'll say the modern inheritance tax, the way that we see it today, came into being. So. So it goes back a long time, uh, but really when it's all said and done, what is the government trying to do? I think number one, they, they're just generating revenue, right? There are lots of federal programs or things that are important uh, and the estate tax is a part of raising that revenue. Uh, a way to think about it, it's kind of like a backstop to the income tax, right? We all have to pay income tax. And then, oh, by the way, there's this other thing called the estate tax. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of a backstop for that. But then also, when you think about, um, you know, the largest and wealthiest families in America, a lot of them accumulate wealth, right? So they, they have assets that grow in value. And then when they, if they hold those assets, so they don't actually sell it or realize the gain during their lifetime, when they pass away, they get a step up in cost basis. So then all of that growth, in theory, never gets taxed. So in the wisdom of our political process. We don't really like that. <laughs> so uh, we want to make sure that everyone shares the burden. And so by allowing that step up in basis to occur, sort of a way to fix that little loophole, if you will, is to put an estate tax on it and say, okay, we don't want the wealthiest families in America to just continue to grow assets and never pay tax on those things. So anyway, just some some historical perspectives. And one quick question on the history. And um, so some most states have their own version of an estate tax or a death tax. And some some are paid by the estate of the deceased person. Some are paid by the person inheriting that tax. Do you know, do you have a sense of when did that start coming into play? When did the states kind of go, aha, we can do our our own stuff? Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, you know what? I, I haven't delved into, you know, all of the states, but I would say it's probably a similar type of time frame. Yeah. Uh, you know, as the population of, of states has grown, as um, needs of, of a particular state have grown, uh, I can I can absolutely see sort of a similar timeline for state estate taxes. 
Uh, now, California, remember, uh, yeah, California and Hawaii are one of the two biggest states within a state tax. So for sure. Um, and it, remember, we did have one year recently, 2010, where the estate tax was repealed. Yes. Uh, and of course, great year to die. Well. <laughs> so uh, here, here we are again. So, but again, I, I think the point or a point to take away from this is it's important for listeners to make sure that they have an advisor, an advisory team that helps to keep them up to date on these things, you know, because look, we're right now in the middle of proposed legislation. Um, We don't have any final uh, word on that at the moment, but uh, you know, I just know if I'm a a lay person out in the community, I'm not necessarily thinking about dying and paying taxes every day, uh, but I want to have a team of people that, you know what, they're going to let me know about things that are, that are coming down the pike. So um, I encourage everybody to make sure they're working with a good team. So, you know, um, why do I need it? So, yes, there's an estate tax, but, you know, why do I need estate planning? I guess is, is the kind of next question. Yeah. And there are many reasons for that. I think um, I think one thing that folks do is they they equate estate planning with minimizing estate taxes. And that's certainly true. And I think we'll get into maybe some some of those uh, ideas and strategies down the line uh, in more detail. Um, But I think it goes for most families, because most families aren't subject to the estate tax, it gets into a lot of other other reasons for doing it. So I think first and foremost, um, it's just a way to put together the roadmap for who's going to inherit my assets, how are they going to inherit it, and when you go through, when a, when a person goes through the estate planning process, it gives them the opportunity to think about what's the impact of all of this, mm-hmm. right? Decisions aren't just made in isolation and they aren't just purely um, logic driven. You know, think about every, I mean, every person listening or watching, think about your unique circumstance. It goes beyond just, oh, I'm going to do these things so I don't have to pay this much in tax. Um, it, it can take the form of, you know what, I've got um, issues with my, uh, my adult children. And look, I've, I've had literally thousands of meetings and I'll, I'll just share. If I meet with a family and they have three adult children, here, here's the basic scenario. Yeah. One is really good with money. One is kind of okay. They're not going to har- harm themselves. But there's always one that's just really not that great with money or assets. And in fact, if they inherit too much, could actually be, could have a negative impact on them. Detrimental. So so what estate planning does is it gives the parent or parents, grandparents, the opportunity to say, how are we going to address the the differences, the unique attributes among our heirs and and what kind of a structure we're going to put around it? So in, in the estate planning world, that the one that's not good with money, we call that a spendthrift heir. So in other words, if they were to get the money, they probably would spend it all on really like wasteful things in six months or less. And, you know, mom and dad, they really didn't want, you know, that to happen. So estate planning, it puts that framework in place uh, to address that. So that's one reason. And, and Dave, just so you know, as a, as a disclaimer, Joel and I are two of three brothers. 
So we're not going to disclose which one's which in this in this whole scenario. <laughs> We've got the two rock stars on the phone. Or on the phone. <laughs> Although I started with the money first, so that's true. True. I just want to say. <laughs> so 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 dealing with I'll say those those types of control from the grave. That's an expression you might hear a lot. Um, I'll be honest. I think sometimes that has a negative connotation because people don't want to quote unquote control. Um, I, I, in my mind, it's let's optimize the impact of our wealth on the family and how, how things are going to happen. So, so dealing with, with those types of issues. Another one though, is if you don't do estate planning, guess what happens? Each state has a set of laws called the intestacy or intestate laws that will determine for you how that money is going to get distributed among the, the heirs. And so, and that's very limited. If you think about it, it'll, it, it will define who gets it, which again, may not line up with what you want, mm -hmm. but here's the other thing. It doesn't address how they receive it. Right. So even if the assets get to the right people, you as the person that accumulated this wealth, you may want to have, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, some guardrails, some guardrails, some incentives, some, yeah. <laughs> some motivations built into your estate plan so that the, that the wealth transfers properly. So that's one. And, and when Joel and I meet with clients, one of the things we always tell them when they say, oh, well, we don't have an estate plan. We, yes, yes, you do. It was done. For, it was done by the state for you. And yeah. aren't you, aren't you uh, excited to have them do that for you? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, and I'll give an example. I mean, in, in the state of Texas, if you are under the intestacy laws, uh, things like real property, like everyone thinks, oh, if I'm married, it just all goes to my spouse. Well, that's not true. Yeah. Like things like real property, there's a partial interest that goes to a spouse and part to the adult children. Hmm. Uh -huh. uh, maybe I don't want that. <laughs> and every state is different. So again, I just encourage everyone to have a team that includes your advisor, certainly good attorneys and good, good accountants. Um, I think another reason for the estate planning is to protect assets. You know, when we think about it, you know, just a litigious society or uh, just even the way that state laws work, not every state allows for you to create a trust and then it's just immediately protected from creditors and things like divorce. Uh, so going through the estate planning process, it allows for the creators of the plan to say, let's, let's think about how can we best protect these assets from not only the estate tax, right, as it transfers across generations, but you know what, if my adult daughter who, who's a doctor, you know, right, she's got professional liability, right? So she's gonna be accumulating assets and, and you know, it's a different discussion, but you know what, if her inheritance comes to her in the form of a trust, then guess what happens? If she has some, some person suing her for a medical malpractice claim, the assets in that trust are protected. Uh, so that's, that's a big one is creating that protection uh, from things like lawsuits. Um, again, I mentioned divorce, you know, not everybody does, you know, look, things happen in life, there are challenges, not every marriage makes it. I mean, I think we all know that statistically, the, the way those numbers look. And so, again, if you inherit assets, there is a presumption in most states, right, that that's not subject to a marriage claim. But here's what can happen. Let's say I inherit money, but then I commingle that with my in my joint checking account, start paying bills out of that. Well, guess what that? Guess what's just happened? That has become potentially an asset subject to equitable division in a divorce. Uh, so having that trust, having the assets in the trust keeps it separate. Uh, and so that's another reason for planning. Um, 
David, how does that kind of tie in with a lot of our clients either have special assets like small businesses or real property that's been in the family for generations? Maybe you can tie that in in that way too. Yeah. So, um, so it's two parts to that. So that great point, Joel. So one is for, for exactly what you just mentioned, those types of assets and keeping those things in the family. Uh, we see that with a lot of, I'll say, um, sort of like the, the, uh, the family vacation home or property. Uh, how do we keep that in the family so that the family can continue to use that and, the, and it brings the family together? Um, certainly having a trust and, and adequately funding that trust. So just, you know, if you put the, uh, the Colorado mountain house in the trust, that's great, but that it's, there's going to be, you're going to have liquidity to pay those uh, property taxes and maintenance. So again, part of the planning, but certainly the trust can keep those assets in that family across time. But another reason to do planning is folks want to make sure that if their heirs want to buy that first home or buy that family vacation house or start a business or make sure that everyone gets educated, um, we see that a lot as well. So, so making sure that some of those goals can be accomplished um, and then doing it in a, in a protected manner. Um, so, so some states just and certainly in in hawaii and california um pretty much everybody in their dog has a trust that's you know you walk in the door <laughs> because of the the probate laws and which we'll, i'm sure we'll jump into just a touch on but some states hey a will is okay but can you talk about the difference between a will and a trust and and what those mean yeah so basically there are two basic ways of uh sort of memorializing your estate plan one is through a will and the other is through a trust. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna make, to make a distinction. The trust I'm going to refer to is called a revocable living trust or living trust. Um, so the way to think about a will. So it's a legal instrument. It permits the creator of the will, the testator to say and make decisions about how are my assets going to uh, be managed and transitioned after I die. The thing about a will, though, is it doesn't take effect until you die. Okay. And how does it become effective? There's this thing called probate, which is a court in some states court supervised process. That's a matter of public record. Um, and it can be very costly, very time consuming. Um, I think in California, you, you know, you're in California, Paul, uh, there are statutory fees that apply, which is a percentage of the value of the estate. And those percentages are, I think it starts at 4%, um, correct me if I'm, if I'm off on that, but I think it's 4% and it works its way down based on size. But here's something that's interesting. The value of the probate estate can include, like let's say there's a house as an example, million dollar house with an $800,000 mortgage. Exactly. Yeah. You might think, oh, I'm only going, my probate estate only includes the 200,000. No. That's not the case. It's the full million dollars. So that probate fee, attorney's fees, and by the way, it's statutory attorney fees and statutory executor fees, it's both, plus court costs. Mm -hmm. So it can be several tens of thousands of dollars. So it's, and it's super expensive. And the other thing in California is the threshold, you know, some estates, if, it's, if the estate is small enough, then you don't need to go through probate. They won't, or if there's an expedited process for that. But the threshold is so low that pretty much anyone with a piece of property in California, you're guaranteed to be hit by that. 
Yeah, exactly. We used to be like that in Texas in terms of property values, but uh, <laughs> property values in this state have gone up like dramatically in the last five to 10 years. So a lot of California license plates rolling around Texas. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, and we, then, like, we, like awesome. we, we like your income tax structure down there. <laughs> exactly. Um, but how do we get around that? And so one of the ways that, that folks can do that is to create a trust. And I, I referred to it earlier as a revocable living trust. And so what the revocable living trust does is it says, okay, let's create a trust. And so what's a trust? Here's how I, here's how I describe it. The way to think about it, a trust is like a contract, right? And we've, we've all entered into contracts. And if you think about a contract, there are always parties to the contract and then the contract has terms. Well, that's all a trust is. The parties to the contract are the creator so that might be called the settlor or the grantor, um, but the creator of the trust, that's the person that actually creates the agreement. They take their assets, they put it into the trust. Then you have the operator of the trust, okay? That's the person, it can be a person or people, or it can be an institution that serve as the trustee of the trust. And it's the trustee's responsibility to carry out the terms of the contract. And again, the creator of the trust gets to decide those terms. You know, one of the things that I see is, is folks get confused. They think, oh, if I turn this over to a trustee, they can just do whatever they want. Right. No, <laughs> they have to follow. They're legally bound as a fiduciary to follow the terms of that trust. And then ultimately, there are the, the recipients or the beneficiaries of a trust. So in the case of a revocable living trust, the grantor, let's say I'm going to create a trust. So I'm the grantor. I'm also going to be the trustee because I'm still alive. I'm going to control my trust while I'm alive. And oh, by the way, this is my stuff. So I'm going to be the beneficiary as well. So the revocable living trust starts out under that structure, but then those ground rules, those provisions can then have that morph into other trusts later. And then here's the good news as it relates to probate. When, when the grantor creates that trust and changes the title of those assets from their own name, which would make the, those assets subject to probate and in, includable in that process, by putting it in the trust, the trust is not subject to probate. And so that's why we, I think when you made the comment earlier, everyone in California that has, has assets, they all have a trust. I think that's step number or, one. Or should, right? Or, or should. should, yeah. Um, so, so that's sort of the, the distinctions between the two. I'll, and I'll say this about the revocable living trust. It is revocable. So that means two things. One, you can revoke it. You can say, I don't want to do this anymore. Terminate the trust. But it also means this. I can amend it. So if I change my mind about something, oh, I have the three kids and I have, you know, these trusts where they can never get the money except for very narrow purposes because they're all irresponsible. And then all of my children become adult children become responsible. Well, I can, I can actually change the terms of my revocable living trust. So that flexibility, uh, and I bring that up because some clients, they, they think if I create a trust, it's set in stone. And there are trusts where that, that actually is the case. And those are called irrevocable trusts. So in other words, you can't just create an irrevocable trust and say, I'm going to change all those terms. But a revocable trust, like this living trust we're talking about, that flexibility remains. The, the other thing I think would be an important point, too, when, when we work with clients and we start going through their, their stuff, right, 
and we say, hey, did you get your trust done? Yes, I have my trust done. And then we go through their stuff and we see that not all the stuff is in the name of the trust, right? So that the trust is actually an entity or like a box and you can create the box, but then you got to put your stuff in the box. Uh, now there are poor overwhelms and I'm sure you'll touch on that, but just, can you just speak briefly to funding the trust? Yeah. Or, so or that, one, one other thing, what assets do not go in the trust? That would be the other thing. Yeah. So, so one of the, I know we mentioned one of our three main topics or mistakes, sort of mistakes or pitfalls. One of the ones that I was going to mention, and we'll, but we'll talk about it now is the, the lack of funding of the trust. So in other words, when, when you hear that term, funding a trust means you're actually changing the title of the asset from your name into the name of the trust. So the trust actually becomes the owner of that. The reason why that's important is if you don't fund the trust, guess what? The box has nothing in it. <laughs> so those terms, there's nothing for them to do because there are no assets. So, so funding the trust is a, is a critical component. Uh, you mentioned the term pour over will, Paul. Um, so whenever a person creates a revocable living trust, they're still going to have wills drawn up. And those wills, in my mind, they're usually very short wills that basically say anything that I didn't already fund or title into my living trust will pour into my living trust. Uh, and so it's that's sort of a, a safety net, a catch-all provision, yeah. just in case the assets didn't get funded. Uh, and then Joel, you asked a really great question, like what assets don't go into it? Well, there are certain assets, things like retirement accounts or 401ks, things that are beneficiary designated. Um, a lot of those types of accounts, they can't actually be titled um, in a trust. So an example would be an IRA. Your living trust can't own the IRA. It has to actually be owned by the the person, the IRA owner. So there are certain assets um, that are that are not, um, you know, eligible to fund the living trust. And I know life insurance can be kind of a gray area and different taxes. So uh, that those beneficiary directed things really should be reviewed with your attorney, correct? Yeah, uh, that's another one of those uh, sort of pitfalls for the unwary. Yeah. <laughs> Just reviewing the beneficiary designations. Um, those things are vitally important because, and I'll, I'll give another one um, that relates to titling. If you have your assets titled joint with right of survivorship, what happens is, so for that account, let's say if I'm a married person and my account is joint with right of survivorship, if I, when I die, it becomes immediately owned by my spouse, right? So she takes immediate ownership. Well, if I went and met with an attorney and we drafted up this really amazing revocable living trust and created all these, you know, asset protected trusts and tax advantage trusts when I died. Well, the asset that joint with right of survivorship account never went even through probate to get poured into the trust to then follow the terms of the trust. It immediately went to the spouse. So, so titling things like joint with right of survivorship, but then certainly beneficiary designations, yep. um, vitally important, especially, and you mentioned insurance, Joel, uh, something for folks to, to keep in mind is if you personally own life insurance and then if um, the beneficiary designation, let's say you were to name your living trust as the beneficiary, then those death benefit proceeds will get included in your estate for estate tax purposes. Yep. Um, 
you know, I bring that up because there are folks that, you know, for various needs and reasons, you know, they, they can purchase some fairly substantial in terms of death benefit size, um, you know, life insurance policies. And if the ownership is not properly structured, let's, let's say you had a $5 million second to die life insurance policy, that $5 million will just pour right back into your estate. That could actually move you into an estate tax situation, you know, depending on how much other wealth you've accumulated. Um, so in that scenario, and maybe this will be a topic that we can, we can cover in one of our next podcasts, but what is an irrevocable life insurance trust and how should those things be structured? And what are the things to think about uh, when, when incorporating life insurance into my estate plan? You know, I'll give you an interesting story that um, we've reviewed. We had a case last year, uh, nice couple. Um, they uh, had purchased life insurance before they had a child, right? Million dollar policy on each of the, the two different spouses. Um, and they, but they bought that before they had the child and they made the beneficiary of life insurance policy, their parents. And then they had a child. So the child is actually now six. <laughs> so it's been at least six years and the parents weren't in great health. So if something happened to both of them, then the money would have gone up the chain to the parents and not for the beneficiary of the child or, or each other. So it's, yeah. it's such an important part of the whole planning to go through the beneficiaries. Yeah. And, you know, Paul, you're, you're bringing up another point that I always try to make. And I mentioned this at the beginning about having the right team of people, you know, and this is a, a kind of jumping ahead to this sort of like, yes, that I see with estate planning. Hard, it's hard to avoid. It's hard to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so one of the things that, that people do is they don't assemble the right team. Yeah. And, and so then they have a lawyer that does a, you know, they do, does the, 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 you know, the trust and then the accountant doing the taxes. And then maybe they have an advice, financial advisor they're working with. What we found over time, and, and I've seen you know, families that are very successful, they work with an advisor, financial advisor, that certainly knows financial planning and all that, but also understands the estate planning component, the life insurance, the beneficiary designations, can really bring all of that together um, and be that quarterback, that, that, that sort of overseer to help navigate all this and to, and to really be that, that focal point, that point of contact. So again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm biased towards, you know, folks creating the right kind of team, but then making sure you've got, you know, a good, uh, really solid financial advisory business, you know, that, that understands all of these yeah. components that you can work with yeah, across the wealth management spectrum. It, yeah, the best outcomes we've ever had. And, I, and unfortunately it was a case where the, the grantor had passed, but good estate planning, good CPA work. And we were on the wealth advisory team. And when the husband passed, the, the survivor wife came in with the daughter and we had a meeting with everybody in the room and we went, everything was done. And it was smiles as opposed to, hey, what's going to happen now? How does this work and do all that? It was basically yeah. execute on the plan that had been put in place. Yeah. I mean, think about it. how many people like are really know their estate attorney at a personal level yeah. or know their accountant at a personal family level. But you know what? I can like the list is long of clients that I've ever met with that know their financial advisor at that kind of a level. And so it's not only the, I'll say the professional expertise, but it's that it's the intangible side of it yeah. that, that I think advisory teams like yours bring to the table. Um, and then when you, when you marry all of those things together, you get the outcome that you just described there, Joel. And 
you know, that, that's, that's why I love my job. I get to be a part of that process. Yes. Well, and, and the other thing that we try and instill is, you know, none of this is really fun to roll your sleeves up and as a family and start talking about how is this going to unfold and what if and, but we try and push the sense of urgency to do this when everybody is happy, healthy, of sound mind, and we can go through this and really put some thought into how do we want this unfold instead of waiting until, hey, something has happened, a, a health issue or somebody, you know, ever passes, and then we have to really scramble to get something done. So the, the, the sooner we can get going on this and start to really put some thought into it, the better. Yeah. And look, the reality is it's a process and things change over time. People's families, their just their perspective, their goals, it, it changes. And so to have, you know, a, a team that's that's in front of it and making it a part of just their overall plan. Again, I think that that's super critical uh, to ensure the success of, of the estate plan. Uh, just a couple of you address the people's fears that, you know, you know the whole dealing with death and not the, the reluctance to deal with the topic. That's probably one of our bigger challenges. How do you try to deal with that with, when you're working with people? Uh, gosh, you know, it's interesting because sometimes just the fact that I'm not the advisor, I'm the, the in-house, you know, subject matter expert, that for some reason, my experience has been that, that allows people to sort of like let the fear factor come down and then we can really just address it. And so I think, you know, just, I think I have a unique role. I think that's one of the things I just I love about, you know, our firm and, and the fact that we have this, that we offer to clients. Um, so I think that's a part of it. Um, I think, I think sharing stories, you know, Hey, if you, if you haven't done it, here are some, here are some things that we've seen. Um, and the outcomes are, are not that great. Um, you know, look, if you don't do, I mean, this gets back to this, why do estate planning? Well, one of the, one of the things that happens if you don't do it is whether it's fear or, you know, whatever the reason is, and look, there's, there's, there's feelings are valid, right? I mean, it's all, it's all real. So there's no judgment about, Hey, if, if you're fearful of this, that's a terrible thing. It's okay. You're fearful of this. Well, why are you know, like, what's going on there? Help us understand that. Usually people can, you know, they can come around to it. Um, but if you don't do the planning, then here's like, here's an example of some things that can happen. Family conflict. You yeah. know, I can't think of a person that said, Hey, I don't want to do it. And I'm going to let that just, you know, cause things down the line to create, you know, uh, rivalries and, and issues between my adult sons and daughters and whoever. Uh, so I, I think just helping people to understand, yeah, it's difficult. And we understand that and we understand the fear involved. But give them a vision to what is it like if you actually do it the right way and then share stories of, hey, look, the taxes were minimized. OK, we, we, we got that one done. But you know what? The family stayed together. The family made it through the probate. Well, hopefully we avoided probate, right. but they made it through the transition of the wealth process with the least amount of expense, the least amount of time. And, and most importantly, the most amount of family harmony. Yeah. And and then oh over time <laughs> that that all played itself out because look when when assets are involved unfortunately uh, I think again we probably have experienced it you know as the the zeros get bigger on the net worth the potential for 
you know, things to just come to come to head, um, it gets bigger. So estate planning helps us to do that. And I think, again, we just communicate that with, with, with clients. Uh, I think they can certainly get over those fears. You know, and, and before we wrap up on the basics of it, um, and, and like we said, we had three topics and we've, we've barely gotten out of the first one, but I just want to touch on, you know, powers of attorney and healthcare directives of some of those other subset documents that are. So when we talk about getting your quote unquote package of documents done and you sit down and you go through that, can you just briefly go through those uh, and just describe those? Yeah. So certainly, you know, will pour over wills or wills, revocable living trust. And then I call them the ancillary documents. So, and what's really important about this is every state has its laws about these types of documents. And they do actually change these and update these. So I know sometimes the these power of attorney documents I'm about to talk about sort of, you know, get brushed to the side. But one document that's needed is it's it's called a general durable power of attorney. So that's a that's a document where you give the agent or the attorney, in fact, the the legal authority to handle things like financial matters and, and make financial decisions. There's a medical power of attorney. So again, you you give a person the ability to make medical decisions on your behalf if you're incapacitated. Along with that, there's a document called a HIPAA authorization, which is a, a, a form that, you know, if you go into a hospital and say, oh, we have these privacy rules, you know, can you imagine if the medical power of attorney couldn't access the medical records or see the medical records? So the HIPAA authorization um, is another document. Sometimes those are built into the same instrument. Um, and we also see um, directives, things like uh, it might be called, I call it a living will. Um, in, many, in many states, it's called an advanced directive to physicians. So basically a document that says, you know what, if, if it's a life support you know, situation, do we use all available treatments or do we, you know, do you give that person the ability to say we're going to, you know, end those treatments? Uh, and so, so that those advanced medical directives. Um, so those, those are, those are the main ones that, that I would say are part of pretty much any, any estate planning package. And, and with our clients, one of the things that we go through is, you know, great. You got your documents done. Uh, now, how are we storing those? <laughs> where are they? Who knows where they are? How accessible are they? So, for example, with healthcare directives, uh, one of the things we'll encourage them to do is if they're using our client portal, keep a copy on there, some sort of digital access to that that they can get on their phone uh, so that when something happens, and you're at the hospital and the first very first question they ask you is well who are you and is there a is there a healthcare directive and you say yes and you're able to pull it up on your phone and go here, here it is because that's that's where you need it right it doesn't do you any good locked in your safety deposit box right no that, that great advice paul um absolutely you know 100 yeah. percent on that so um well, we've we've gone a while and we took a small bite out of the elephant <laughs> and we, we talked a little bit about some of the important decisions to make and and some of we touched on. We got to touch a little bit about uh, revocable and irrevocable. Why don't we just quickly go into revocable and irrevocable just so we leave on that and okay. just describe what the differences are in that and how one can turn into the other. And then I think we're going to be forced to to 
tackle next time some of the other stuff so the the two out of the other three we thought we'd get to today well we did touch on a lot of these sort yeah. of traps for the unwary or pitfalls for the unwary so i i we i think we built in a few of those paul uh, so yeah the different types of trust i mean revocable versus irrevocable trust i i think a few key differences so one and i mentioned this when we talked about the living trust but revocable trust you can terminate or revoke them whereas an irrevocable trust when you set it up uh, and, and you fund the trust, the trust is going to exist for however long you set the term was. You can't just say, uh, I just, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to just terminate all this. Uh, so you, you actually created a, a, a contract, a legal contract that has obligations that are now going to, to play out. So I think that's one key difference. Um, the revocable trust can be changed. So I mentioned that earlier, right? You can change the terms of it. An irrevocable trust, you can't go in and say, oh, I'm just going to change, you know, Article 3 about the dispositive provisions. But what you can do, though, is you can you can draft an irrevocable trust so that there's flexibility to do things within its within its provisions. So that's that gets back to just, you know, having an attorney that's a skilled attorney in estate planning. Uh, you, you know, again, this was one of the sort of mistakes that I've seen people do. They have their personal injury attorney friend that's their neighbor that they think is really awesome. Uh, I can't tell the you how many times the, talking to clients and saying, you know, con finally convincing them, yes, you need to get your stuff done. And they say, oh, yeah, I have a, I have an attorney friend. He said he'd do it. And yeah. My cousin, Vinny. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then here's the last point I'll make. I know we're, we're short on time, but. A revocable trust, it's it's revocable while you're alive and have capacity to, to make changes. It becomes irrevocable if you no longer have capacity. Why is that? Well, we don't want someone else coming in and saying, we're going to change the terms of the trust. Um, so incapacity or, or, or upon your passing. So a way to think about this is a revocable trust, it may create some resulting trust when the client passes away those resulting trusts are irrevocable. And again, why, why is that resulting trust irrevocable? We don't want the beneficiary to come in and say, oh, my dad, he, he really wanted me to just have all the money by the time I turned 35. And, you know, and, and then the trust is set up for, for that son's lifetime. So Never heard that. Right, exactly. So, uh, so just some distinctions there between revocable and irrevocable. And, and again, I know when we get to some of the, uh, I'll call it the advanced estate planning strategies, yeah. part of the, there's some tax benefits and, and tax uh, strategies to implement, but the, the trade-off for, for, for gaining access to those things is the fact that you're going to be operating in, in an irrevocable trust environment. And so that's part of the, the trade-off for, for doing some of those advanced strategies. But, but again, we'll, we'll get into that uh, on, on one of the future uh, broadcasts. Great. Well, you have been more than generous with your time. Uh, appreciate it. And, thank you, David. And thank you for volunteering to come back. So now we can, you know, I'm sure this will be a 17-part series where we go. <laughs> you had him sign the contract, right, Paul? Yeah, yes, for sure. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And again, um, you know, it, it's something that I absolutely love doing. And I, as I said at the very beginning, if we can get the estate planning right for families, then we're going to have families that are happier, healthier, 
you know, and living the kind of life that they that they want to live for for themselves and for for all those next generations. Uh, so that that's that's a big part of the motivation here. So thank you, uh, and I really appreciate the time as well. Thank you. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this topic interesting or useful, please let us know. Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for being invested. The RAND Group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not offered to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.